Before I forget, I, I failed to mention one announcement that I want to make sure that those who are affected by it remember. Some of you got a letter this week, our child care workers, we're having an informational meeting Wednesday night, and if you can at all be there, please do. It'll be at 6.30, and because of that, we're moving our business meeting to 6, just so you know. So if you're interested in coming to the business meeting, I know that may rock your world, but please show up a half hour earlier, adjust your schedule now to prepare, and then if you, if you are a volunteer in youth or children, and that would include if you may plan on volunteering for Vacation Bible School. If you have any inclinations, you might do that. Please come at 6.30. We're going to try to get you out of here by 7.30. Child care stuff, all the things will still happen. I'll catch those guys up to speed later. But just so you know, and, and I apologize that I forgot about that. If you've got any questions, just see me afterward. Some of you got a letter. I'll be sending out an email as a reminder tomorrow, but uh, just before I forgot. Why don't you pray with me, please? Lord, we're thankful for your grace this morning, uh, even when... We have technical difficulties, and, and we forget things and all of that. But we're thankful uh, that you, you're still okay and that you're unaffected and that you are still here and you still want to speak to us this morning. We thank you for this church and for the, the people that are in it. We thank you, Lord, for those who have loved you for so long. And, Lord, we, at the same time, we ask for more who would love you and, Lord, that would give their lives to you this morning. So, God, as we study your word, I pray that it would go forth for the purpose that you send it, and, Lord, that we would, uh, would receive it and be changed by it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to know I'm proud of you for being here this morning. <clears throat> Last night, uh, we had two things fighting against us <clears throat> that I was concerned about with attendance. Uh, one is that we, we had to spring forward. There will be folks who will arrive late this morning, just so you know, just scoot over, let them sit down. I'll pretend like it's the beginning of the service. Randy, maybe we can get you back up here and you sing the opening song again, just to make them feel like it's okay for showing up a little bit late when they realize this morning that they forgot to set their clocks forward. And so those folks maybe will walk in. We had that working against us. And then uh, almost in a tragic sense, Murray State lost last night. And I know that there are some folks who who literally, both because you're tired or lacking that hour of sleep, and you're just dejected. You had to drag yourself out of bed this morning. Some couldn't do it. They're just, it's just awful. I was actually not able to see the game last night. I was helping out with, with my daughter's play, and, but texting back and forth with my wife with the score, and I knew that my son would be devastated as he was when I got home and, and had trouble going to sleep, and yet he's here this morning, so I, I'm proud of him, but certainly those who follow that stuff, and in our town, obviously, being a college town, for many, it's, a, it's something that maybe even you just casually follow and you, you like the university or whatever, but, but March Madness is here, and I know for some, you live for this time of year. I do, because as soon as the tournament's over, it's baseball season, and so that, that's, that's exactly what I'm, what I'm going for, but, but, but it's interesting. If, you, if you've watched sports in any way, you, you know that, that a lot of times what they'll try to do is they want to hear from the coach. They have pregame interviews. Sometimes they have midgame interviews at halftime. And then they have a postgame interview. And they're always wanting to get the words of the coach. In a sense, they want the game in the coach's own words. Last night I, I listened to the postgame show with Steve Prohm, Murray's coach. And Neil Bradley, the radio announcer, first thing he says is, you know, Coach, I'm sorry, and what a, what a tough loss, and I know it's tough on you and these six seniors. And he said, just tell me how you feel after something like that. <laughs> Whew, and he's live on the radio. And so I, 
but Coach Prome, he just says, I just feel sick. That's what he said, I just feel sick. And we get the, the game, there's, there's the game in a nutshell, in the coach's own words, I just feel sick. And you can imagine all they've worked for and all of that, and you all have things like that, that you've worked so hard to achieve, and maybe it doesn't work out, and oh, what a sick feeling. And, and even if the words are few, just like that, the, the people at the center of the story, the middle of the game, those are the folks that you want to hear from because they really can give you the best perspective. And when we think about leading up to Easter in a few weeks, there, there's no more important story in all of the Bible than the Easter story. Certainly none of them are more important than the Easter story. And certainly there's no more important person in the Easter story, obviously, than Jesus himself. And so there are no words that are spoken more important than those spoken by Jesus during the Easter story. And so we're, we're going to begin a series this morning called Easter in the Lord's Own Words. I'll just warn you up front, I don't have any unique angles on Easter. You know, every year at Easter, preachers across America and across the world try to find something they've never preached before to wow the people who will show up. I don't have anything unique. There's nothing I can add to the Easter story, and it would be blasphemous for me to think that I can. It is complete and is sufficient, and you reading it is good enough, but I hope that as we focus just on the words of Christ around, before, during, and then after the Easter story, this series will run even after Easter a little bit, that maybe we just get a fresh perspective. We get the Lord's perspective. Easter in His words. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in the New Testament. Luke chapter 19, I want you to, to look with me beginning in verse 28. Now here's what we'll do this morning. I want to read the scripture to you, and I want to go back, and I... I want to work kind of phrase by phrase through this and, and helping to draw out the meaning. And, and just so you know, I'm going to give you the, the main stuff there that's on your bulletin at, toward the end. And so some of you will have to sit in anticipation. And those who are especially OCD will be driven crazy this morning because I will not give it to you at the beginning. But you will get it at the end, and certainly it will be monumental and incredibly desired at that point. So let's look at verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the ground. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I want to work through this a little bit phrase by phrase and just help us to see what's going on. I, if you can in any way this morning, I want you to imagine yourself sort of walking along with Jesus. Uh, 
this is Sunday of Passion Week in this story. On Friday, he'll be crucified. The following Sunday, he'll rise from the dead. And this is really the beginning of the Easter story. The first thing, Jesus has finished his teaching ministry, and now here he goes to the cross. So look at verse 28. It says, when he had said these things. Now, it refers back to the, the previous parable, actually. And in particular, one verse that, that is particularly of, of importance, verse 27, right before this. He says, but bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. He's telling a parable, a story with a point. And he says there are different kinds of people. Jesus is drawing some lines in the sand. There are those who will submit to the rule of Christ and those who will not. And there are temporal or now and eternal or forever consequences based upon a person's response to Jesus, whether in favor of submitting to Jesus or against that. So the lines are being drawn, and Jesus clearly shows us that submission to his rule is necessary for eternal life. I want you to know this morning that salvation is not just an agreement in your mind, though that's required, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did indeed die for your sins, and he did indeed rise from the dead. That certainly must be true, that you must believe that. But in believing, that word in the New Testament always carries with it the thrust that in believing you also submit. And you lay yourself down and you submit to his rule for your life. What is the old saying? Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. So certainly we see here he's drawing those lines. You can't just agree mentally that Jesus is who he says he is. It must be also in laying down your life for him. So when he said these things, he's drawing these lines. And what we're going to get is an example of the different kinds of people, the different responses that are possible. He said, it says, he went on ahead. Now, don't miss that. He went on ahead. You realize he's out in front? Picture yourself there with Jesus. And he's told you that he's going to be crucified. And it seems as if we're kind of winding down to where maybe that's going to happen. You would expect that if Jesus were completely and only human, that we'd have to force him to go on. That an angel from God would have to show up and sort of kick him and get him going. But where is Jesus? He's out front. He goes on ahead it says there, no one had to force him. No one had to direct Jesus where to go to find the cross. He's the one in charge in this story. Don't miss that. He's the one in charge. He's going forward. He's willing to die. He knows what's going to happen, and he's already submitted to it. His submission to God's will would mean his death, but our eternal life. But his death is no accident. It's no surprise. It's no plan B. This was God's plan all along that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. So he goes on ahead. I love that. Just picture him there. He knows what's going to happen on Friday, and yet he's out front. I don't know about you, but I'd probably be anywhere but out front if I know in a few days I'm going to be tortured and killed. I would run off and hide somewhere far away, at least as far away as I could get till they caught me. Jesus is not doing that. It says he's going on up to Jerusalem. When he, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You realize that, that previously the Bible records that he set his face toward Jerusalem. You know what that means? That he determined, you know what, I'm getting to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stop me from getting there. The goal here is being attained. Everything in his ministry had led up to this point where he now goes up to Jerusalem. So here's the king of kings about to enter the royal city. But as we'll see, it's not going to be like everyone hoped or thought that he would enter. 
But here he is, this coming one that had been promised, now arriving. And even though he knows that they'll crucify him, he, he doesn't go in fear and in hiding like I would. He goes publicly and triumphantly. This will seem like a joke in a few days. When he's hanging on the cross, they'll look back and think, this guy came with this triumphant procession, and now here he is. It will seem like a joke, very ironic. But he marches on toward his unfair treatment and his execution, not in hiding, but openly and victoriously. Let me tell you, if that's how he went to the cross on our behalf, publicly, triumphantly, victoriously, to his death, then there is no way in the world that we can believe that our faith should be something that is private and reserved. Now, I realize that maybe that steps on a few toes. I don't know. But I guess pastorally I'm willing to do that this morning because I look at Jesus and I say, He goes publicly. He leads the charge to the cross. He's not holding anything back whatsoever. And yet here in America we have gotten to the point where we say, Well, my faith is a private matter. I don't really talk about it much. It's sort of between me and God. Certainly your own salvation is between you and God. But Jesus, in a public way, goes and dies for your sins. And there's no way in the world we can look at that and say, well, as a result, my faith must be private. There was nothing private about Jesus and his march to the cross. Also, if, if this is how he approaches what most people would have viewed during that time as his greatest defeat, let me tell you the encouragement. That the circumstances in your life that may seem to conspire to create your greatest defeat may in fact be what God is using to bring about your greatest victory. Jesus here is marching to the cross. Everyone around him when he gets there will think he's been defeated. This great teacher, this great claiming to be Messiah person is now dead. What about him? And guess what God was doing? Bringing victory to those who will believe in him for salvation. Your circumstances may seem to be defeating you today. But it may be that God is using them. God is conspiring to use them to bring about your most incredible victory. He goes publicly to the cross. And then verse 29, he approaches Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. This Bethphage place is is sort of like a little village around Jerusalem. I kind of think of it as one of the many groves around Murray. We have several groves around Murray, if you haven't paid any attention. I don't know that I can name all of them. Maybe you can help me. We have, I think, Locust Grove, and we have Scotts Grove, and we have Oak Grove and Lynn Grove. And, of course, last but not least, we have Elm Grove. Praise God for Elm Grove, all right? Am I missing any? There are several groves. Maybe I am. Did I, did I hear any? What is it? Harris? Harris Grove. I never heard of Harris Grove. Well, how about that? I'll add that to the list. You can see that this was sort of like what we're talking about. These little villages you pass here on 94, what does it say? Elm Grove. Not really incorporated, but certainly important to all of us. Elm Grove and, and Bethphage was a lot like that. They come to what's known as the Mount of Olives. Now this has some end times significance for those who would have read this gospel from the very beginning. Those who would have read Luke's gospel would have understood that the Mount of Olives was, was a, a site thought to be, maybe where Jesus would come back to in his second coming. It's a place high above sea level, over 2,000 feet above sea level, and it overlooks Jerusalem It faces the temple. So here he is, Jesus standing there on the mountain, looking down into the valley, about to walk through the gate and head toward the temple to be crucified. The king of kings standing, looking over his territory, about to take the city in a way that no one expected. He sends two of his disciples, also in verse 29. Messengers during this time were sent two by two. 
And you wonder what conversation they had along the way. Jesus there standing on the mountain and he sends them into this little village and gives them instructions. You wonder what they're talking about. You wonder if they reflected on what he had told them at all. You know, Jesus hadn't kept it a secret that he was going to die. He told them. And yet what did the disciples do all along? They didn't really get it. They didn't really understand. They didn't really want to believe that Jesus was in fact going to die. Peter, in fact, brings him aside at one point and says, Look, this isn't going to happen. I'm sorry, but we're not going to let this happen to you. And Jesus, the greatest to me, the greatest insult in the entire Bible, calls him Satan. Uh, he, he says, Get behind me. You don't, you don't understand. So the disciples, I wonder, as they, as they walk on this mission given to them by Jesus, do they get it? Even before this, in, the, in the, the, the few days leading up, as they walk toward Jerusalem, they're still arguing over who's the greatest. Who's going to sit at the right and the left of Jesus? And who's going to rule with him in this great kingdom that he'll establish? I wonder if they, they had any inkling at all that when he tells them to go get a donkey, that something is different. <laughs> Something's not exactly computing in what they think will happen. Did it start to sink in? Did they realize at all what his mission really was to be about? And if so, what did they think about it? You know, they, they all ran away at his crucifixion. They wouldn't be totally bold until after his resurrection and they saw him. And yet here they are being used by God to accomplish his will. Verse 30 says this, Jesus tells them, Go into the village and, and you'll find a young donkey there on which no one has ever sat. He says, Untie it and bring it to me. Interesting that he would choose a donkey. Some of your versions may say a colt or, or something like that, but, but a young animal, a humble young animal. You realize that, a, that, that an animal on which no one had ever sat was the only animal qualified to carry the king of kings? This wasn't an ordinary animal. This was something unique. No one had ever ridden this animal before. It must have been young or maybe, maybe kept for a special purpose. It also represents the earthly poverty and humility of Jesus. You realize that he never sought earthly wealth. It just wasn't that important to him. Now we know the Bible tells us that wealth is not inherently evil. There's nothing wrong about being wealthy, but it certainly, the Bible tells us, can be a major stumbling block for those who are bent on possessing it. It can be a major issue. Jesus shows that, he, he's, that he's willing to humble himself. He's willing to, to get on our level to become one of us, even like the lowliest of us, to save us from our sins. And so here he comes, riding on this donkey. He says, if anyone asks you, tell them that the Lord needs it. Jesus gave his disciples all the tools they needed to accomplish the mission. They're prepared and they obey without hesitation. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. More evidence that Jesus is who he claims he is. The owners did ask, why are you untying the young donkey? Just checking. Happens to be ours. What are you doing with it? The disciples give this prepared answer, the Lord needs it. Isn't it interesting? It's all they say. The Lord needs it. And what I find particularly of interest here is that Luke, in this little story, verses 28 to 40, he spends five verses talking about the fact that Jesus said, go into this village, grab this young donkey, untie it, bring it to me. If anybody says anything to you, just tell them I need it. And then he repeats, here's exactly what happens, just as the Lord said. Five verses, you would think he could cover that in about six words. Jesus wanted a donkey. Maybe seven words, so he got it. I mean, you'd think he could cover that pretty quickly, but, he, but it's interesting. What's he trying to show us? What's he trying to reveal to us here about Jesus and, his, and who he is? One of the things is that he has authority. It's 
to ask for and to receive anything he wants. You realize in those days the king could say, I want this, and it was immediately procured for his use. He just demanded, I need this, and he just took whatever he wanted. Jesus is demonstrating himself to be the king of kings, having dominion and rights and preference over anything and everything, all of creation. You, me, even all the stuff we have belongs to him and to him alone. He's also showing that, that everything that we possess, just like these folks who possessed this young donkey said, go ahead and take it. <laughs> if the Lord needs it, you take it. Everything we possess must be freely given to the Lord for his use. Even if, I say this, and I think it may hit home with a few of you, even if all you seem to have is an inexperienced donkey. You say, I don't have much to offer the Lord. I'm not very well educated. I, I don't have a great pedigree. I haven't been a Christian very long, or whatever your excuse may be. <laughs> I've got mine as well. Jesus just says to these folks, I, I need that donkey. And they say, all right. And look at what it gets used for. They just said, Lord, take it. Maybe you this morning would say, God, I don't have much to offer you. What I look at my life and see is just not much at all, but you take it, you use it however you want to. And just see what God does with that. Also, Luke here is showing us that either Jesus had omniscience and pre-knowledge that a donkey would be there, which he certainly could have, or that he just arranged it all ahead of time. If he already knew it was going to be there and just told them, go and, and, and you'll find it, then it's just proof that he's God, that he knows everything. If not, if he's really saying, hey, you know, in a, in a sense, Jesus already set all this up. He's already got it arranged. Just go and it'll be taken care of. All he's doing then is proving that he is the Messiah sent from God who is willingly going to his crucifixion, fulfilling the prophecy about himself. Either way, this little story in the midst of this story is proof that he is who he says he is. Then look at verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, they put their robes on it, sort of like a, a makeshift saddle, and they placed Jesus on it. They help him get on it. It's an act of honor. I went to a wedding once where the bride rode in on a horse. And she was sitting in one of those little carriage-like things. You know, they put on, I don't even know what that's called. But they put it on top of the horse, and all the flowers, a white horse, and oh, it's beautiful. There she is in her white dress and so on. She rides in on the horse, and thankfully the horse kept everything under control. And, and, uh, and you know what I mean? And so, so anyway, she rides in, and, and such a beautiful, just a place of honor. Here's this bride riding in on this horse, this incredible place of honor. And that's really what they do for Jesus. It's a sign that he's the king. He is to be honored Similar in 1 Kings to Solomon's coronation where he rides in just like this. You see the Old Testament sort of references and allusions and Jesus is, is amplifying them. Riding on this donkey was symbolic of the kind of uh, rule that he would have. That he's a poor and humble man but a far better king than the crowd or even his disciples could ever imagine or ever desire. He, he gets on this donkey, and, and no one had ever ridden it before, and you would expect that it might buck him off, and they'd have to put him back on, and then it shoves him off again. What happens? The animal just sits there. Jesus, the one who created that animal, sits down, and the animal is just as calm as can be. He's also fulfilling prophecy here in Zechariah chapter 9. This is not quoted, but this is the picture. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here he is, symbolizing the kind of rule he will have and fulfilling prophecy. Then verse 36, as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the ground. Here they are rolling out the red carpet. 
They're rolling out the red carpet. Their, their expectations that He is the Messiah, that all this is about to happen that's been promised for so long, here they go and they're going to make it happen. And this is a continuous action. They keep throwing their robes out. And maybe if they need to, they go to the back and they throw some more out in the front and they let Him ride over those robes. They're welcoming Him as their Messiah, as their King. And in a sense, symbolically, they're saying, you go ahead and take charge. You ride over our lives just like you're riding over these coats. King Jehu in the Old Testament is the preview for this in 2 Kings. It says, Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horns and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You can see the picture previewed there. So here's Jesus, not just a king, but the king of kings in his royal procession, presenting himself as the king of Israel. It's a triumphant but certainly ironic entry. Those who are saying, right over our lives, we submit to you, will then on Friday say, crucify him. The same crowd will one day say, we love you, and the next day say, kill him. They're spreading their robes on the ground as he's going along this humble ride. Major statement about his kingship, and not everybody's going to like it. In fact, as I just said, the crowd will one day turn against him in a short period of time. But he's telling them that his kingdom was heavenly, not earthly at that time. It's important for us to remember that. I think we, just like these folks, we often fall into the trap of thinking that, that things would just be better if the government did this or that. And certainly that would change the world and all would be right. Do you realize that the kind of change that Jesus desires for the world cannot happen through anything but heart change and transformation. And that doesn't come with new laws or old laws. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. I want you to know that. That's great news. Because we don't have to depend upon anyone but Jesus Christ to change this world. We don't have to depend on those that we elect or don't elect. We don't have to depend upon those who work in public service and those who don't. We depend on Jesus Christ and on Him alone for transformation. And so that's great news. The world may seem to be going the wrong way, in your opinion. And the answer, though, is nothing that you and I can create. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit changing lives. So that's our mission. We see Him going along, and that's what He will do. Verse 37, He comes near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the momentum grows. It's like a pep rally at a high school. I used to go to pep rallies when I was in high school, and the basketball team back then at PRP was really good. And they, they, they would do these pep rallies, and they'd bring the team out, and they're all sitting down at first, you know, and, and then it kind of grows, and the band keeps playing the same song over and over and over and over, and, you know, they're, they're okay at it, but they just keep playing. And so then they get louder, and the momentum grows, and finally the team stands up. Then they turn them loose on the floor, basically. And back then we had some pretty big guys, and they, they, they started just doing layups. They're getting loose, just some layup lines. Crowd's kind of getting into it. Of course, everybody's pumped because they're out of class. That's the main thing about a pep rally that everybody likes. They're out of class. The band gets louder, and finally, finally the guys get loose, and they just start dunking the basketball. And there I was leading the charge. The first one, no, I'm just joking. And <clears throat> They'd have to lower the goal or be a trampoline or something. I don't I could get the bottom of the net. I think that's about it. But 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 there they and it just kind of 
it escalates into this frenzy when they start to dunk them. And that's what's happening as he comes down the Mount of Olives. The pep rally grows. The band gets louder. Everybody's excited. The mountain here, this symbol of the Messiah, where he would appear prophesied in Zechariah. Jerusalem comes into view. And imagine the scene there with Jesus. I've got a feeling that, that it had to kind of slow down for him. The pep rally's going on, but he doesn't hear the band. The folks are chanting, but, but he looks at Jerusalem and he knows on Friday what's going to happen. But he also knows that one day he'll return and Jerusalem will look much different when he does. He sees all the people, he knows what will happen in a few days, but he knows what will happen one day. And it says the whole crowd of disciples and the other gospels add that the, the entire crowd, they're praising God and shouting, and some probably showed up just because it seemed to be advantageous during that, let's join the crowd, they seem to be so, doing something great. They're praising him, it says in verse 37, for his miracles, what he had done. They had reason to praise Jesus. He had healed people and cast out demons and turned water into wine and raised the dead. And they praised him for what he had done, which flowed out of who he was. And it says in verse 38, they praise him with a loud voice. In verse 38, records what they do. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah is here, they say. He's here. Here's God's representative. Our hopes are being fulfilled. They finally, finally think that the time has come to overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And for the disciples, you imagine this is a great moment. They'd follow Jesus around for three years, not really understanding everything. They'd left everything behind. They'd walked around. He'd make them poor, basically, and not able to keep anything of their own. And finally, they're going to gain everything they'd hoped for. The crowd wanted to see this Messiah claim his kingdom. And the excitement grows as they think, finally, they're realizing it. They wanted deliverance from all their earthly problems, from the Romans who'd oppressed them, from the politics of the day that didn't allow them as much freedom as they liked. And the, the excitement grows. And look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd realize the religious police are always around. Now, I won't call any names here this morning because I don't have anybody in particular in mind, but we have religious police even in our church. In every church in America and in the world, there are religious police. We don't like to talk about that, but it's true. We have those who are more concerned about themselves, making sure everything's done exactly the right way. The Pharisees from the crowd, they mingle with the groups, they follow along, they see what's happening, it's beyond their control. <laughs> I mean, it, this would be tough for them. You imagine, they're the ones, the keepers of the religion. I almost feel for the Pharisees in some way, I'll be honest with you, I have, I have some compassion toward them, because their whole lives, they've just been trying to honor God, they thought anyway, the best way they knew how. And Jesus shows up and turns everything on its ear. They didn't know what to do. They didn't believe in him, but they, they certainly weren't awful, rotten, nasty folks that you just think are sinners bound for hell. They seem to be religious people. They see what's happening. It's getting out of their control. They, they tried to arrest Jesus for this kind of stuff before, but now they decide it's time to do something. So what do they say? Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. They were fine with Jesus being a prophet or a teacher or this little guy that grew up in Nazareth and now he's, he's a rabbi, came out of Galilee, and here he is. and He's a miracle worker. We're okay with that. But when he starts to receive the title of king, which is associated with God himself, then that's too much for the Pharisees. That's too much for them. 
All of the praise overwhelms them. In fact, in John, it records that they were worried that the whole world was going to join him. (laughs) So they say, stop it. Don't let the blasphemy continue. And unfortunately, what they do in this is they show themselves to be the enemies in verse 27, but bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. They obviously didn't understand the God they spent so much time talking about. Jesus' response in verse 40 is classic. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. The rocks will take their place, he says. Nothing can detract from this day. You'll, You'll hear the same praises coming out of the ground if need be. Because whether we praise Him or people praise Him or not, Jesus will and He must be praised. So here is the timeless truth. Easter in the Lord's own words today. Write this down. The first part is Jesus... Jesus doesn't need our praise. Make sure you know that. Sometimes I think we we figure we're doing Jesus a favor. If we show up at church and we sing and we preach and we do all these things, I'm guilty of that as well. I'm doing Jesus a favor. Let me tell you this. He doesn't need our praise. He says if these were silent, what? The rocks will cry out. You have a rock concert on your hands. The rocks will cry out. They'll start singing. They'll start chanting and shouting. Some of you are scared to death right now that I'm going to start doing that. We're going to have a rock concert right here. We'll just line up all the rocks. But that's what would happen, Jesus. And look at you. He says, I don't need your praise. Jesus is the only one who's worthy of our praise, but he himself does not need it. He is not incomplete if we don't praise him. He is sufficient, and his identity and his value will not be diminished if we fail to praise him. He did not create us because He needed companionship, because He needed to be praised. He created us simply to share in His glory so that we may also benefit from who He is. And in so doing, return glory to Him. We're created to praise Him, but He doesn't need our praise. The second part of that is is important. Jesus doesn't need our praise, but we desperately need to praise Him. He doesn't need our praise, but we desperately need to praise Him. You realize you and I, every one of us in this room, that includes you, and that includes me, every one of us was created to worship. Our hearts are set on worshiping something or someone, and it is revealed each and every day of our lives. I I see that in my own life. I'm created to worship, and I will find objects of worship, but there is only one worthy of my worship, and that is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's in our nature to worship. We can't change that. It's in our nature to praise. We can't change that about ourselves. And praising Jesus, the reason we need to is because it's the only way that we can be reminded of His daily goodness, His daily presence, His daily sovereignty in our lives. It's the only way that we can be reminded that we're not the center of the universe. You ever get off on that a little bit? You ever start to think that you're most important? I do that all the time. Praising Jesus is something that He will use to bring everything into perspective, to reorder our lives according to His priorities. It's something that others will see in you and that Jesus Himself said that if He's lifted up, He'll draw people to Himself through that. It's a tool in God's hands. It's what brings us victory in the midst of maybe our most difficult times. Jesus doesn't need our praise, but we desperately need to praise Him. So you've got some options with praise. We've seen these already in the story. We've seen Jesus be the only one worthy of praise for all that He is and all that He has done. But there are some options that you've got. The first is you can have genuine praise, just like the disciples. 
Your praise options first include genuine praise. That's giving honor. They place him in the position of prominence, riding there on that donkey. They submit to him, throwing their robes on the ground. They speak praise in a loud voice, and they live it out, not just in their words, but in what they're doing. It's also spontaneous. You just picture it. Here's Jesus, and all of a sudden the crowd begins to praise him. And the results are that life with perspective. I get to know who I am, but more importantly, who he is. It helps to align me with God's will, and it also, this genuine praise of Jesus gives evidence that my heart has truly been changed by Him. So you can praise Him genuinely. You can also praise Him in a half-hearted manner. You've got genuine praise, you've got half-hearted praise. This is the crowd. Not the disciples, the, the true disciples, but sort of the crowd. that They thought maybe it was good at the time. Uh, based upon their circumstances and the momentum that's being gained, we figure, let's jump in on this. This sounds like a good deal. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I can do that. The problem is the results were not good. A week later, the circumstances and the momentum changed. And these folks who found themselves on Sunday joining in with saying praises to the Lord also found themselves shouting, crucify Him. If we praise Jesus based upon our circumstances or momentum in society or the church, or what may seem to be a good idea for us at a certain time, we'll quickly go the other way when all that stuff changes. And it will change. So you can genuinely praise Him or half-heartedly praise Him or you can be resistant to praise. These are the Pharisees. These are the folks in the story here that play the role of, like I said, the religious police. Some of us may not even know that. We've all been guilty of it. There are always some who will be religious but not truly surrendered to Jesus Christ. These are the ones that Jesus said, don't submit to His rule Maybe they're cynical. Maybe they just like to call other folks out for getting a little out of control in their praise of the Lord. Maybe they'd rather rebuke others than actually praise the Lord themselves. The results were seen in this parable before. They'll ultimately be destroyed because they've not submitted their lives to Jesus. Those who are consistently resistant to praising the Lord unfortunately give evidence that their hearts are not turned toward the Lord. You can't just be resistant over and over and over and over to the Lord and still claim to know Him for who He really is. What's interesting also is that this was the last mention of the Pharisees in the book of Luke. This is it. Rebuke your disciples. Off the scene. Not heard from again in the book of Luke. You've got some options. I hope, as I mentioned those, you identify, where do I stand right now? Holy Spirit, you tell me, where am I? Am I giving you genuine praise? Am I half-hearted or am I resistant? And Lord, convict me and change my heart this morning. So here's your assignment for next Sunday. All right? A little homework. Take care of it this week. That's an order. All right? See how many of you are awake. All right. Here's what I want you to do this week. Seriously, I want you to prepare for worship next week. I want next Sunday morning, I don't care what it looks like, what it sounds like, I don't care at all, but I want it to be an outflow of our worship this week. I want us individually so that collectively as a church, we're worshiping the Lord each and every day. We're praising Him so that next Sunday isn't the first time that we've done it all week. It's the culmination of that, and we join our hearts together, and we join Him on this triumphant march to victory in the cross and the resurrection. So here's what I want you to do. Your assignment this week, first of all, write it. Your praise assignment this week, I want you to write a praise. Maybe you say, I don't know, what are you talking about? 
just write some, write a prayer, write a praise, whatever it may be. Some of you, maybe, maybe that's, maybe you do some journaling or you take some notes. Write a praise to the Lord. There is something in your life you can praise God for this week. There is a reason to praise Him. And maybe, just maybe, you'd write it down this week. Secondly, I want you to say it, to speak it. Write it and then say it. Maybe in your prayers this week, you would just simply tell the Lord how great He is. You say, I've never done that before. I don't know what to say. You just tell the Lord how great He is. Lord, you are great. Start there. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. You are God and God alone. Say it to the Lord. And then thirdly, sing it. Now hold on just a second. Sing. I don't know. Sing a praise to the Lord this week. Maybe it's your favorite hymn. Maybe it's your favorite praise song. Maybe it's a song on the radio that you sing along with. And you praise the Lord with your voice. You know that's biblical. And it's okay. And the Bible says you don't even have to be good. And I said, Amen. Praise God for that. So I sit on the front row and only Randy can hear me. And he said, not even amen on that. Sing a praise this week, whatever it may be. I know you've got a favorite hymn. I know you've got a favorite praise song. Whatever it may be, sing a praise to the Lord this week. And then all along, fourthly, live it. You can write it, you can say it, you can sing it. But if it's not in your heart and you're not living it, then it means nothing. Live it this week. Live as, th- as if this week were a praise to God. In everything you do at work, at home, at school, wherever you may go, live this week as a praise to Jesus Himself for who He is and for what He has done. Write it, say it, sing it, live it, and do it genuinely. Next week, as I told you, when we gather here, I'm not looking for you to, to manufacture emotion. I'm not worried about that. But I pray that next week will simply be the culmination of a week long of praise from the people at Elm Grove. All week long in our community, we've been praising Jesus and we show up next Sunday morning and something is different because it's a culmination of what we've been doing all week long. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you our praise this morning. You is the only one worthy. We thank you for the story that we've seen where you willingly went to Jerusalem to go to the cross for us. Lord, may we praise you and not wait for the rocks to cry out. So Lord, even this morning as we will close with a song, may it be the cry of our hearts from genuine people who love you. Lord, convict us where we've gone wrong in this area. We thank you that you forgive us. And Lord Jesus, we submit to your rule this morning. We lay our robes down before you and we say, you take over. So Lord, may that be true of us individually and collectively. And Lord, may next week be a culmination of the praise we have given you all week long. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death and your resurrection. We pray these things in your name.